This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the treatment of cataracts with eye surgeon, Dr. Paul Sangera. We'll talk about whether there's a loneliness health crisis with psychotherapist John Sovic. We'll find out garden hacks to avoid with organic master gardener, Melissa Cameron. And lastly, we'll learn about hernias with sports rehab expert, Stacey Irvine. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Microbiologists have uncovered the evolutionary origins of antimicrobial resistance, AMR, in bacteria. The studies on the bacterium that cause cholera provide insight into deciphering what conditions must occur for infectious agents to become resistant. The researchers study genetic variants of a protein found in bacterial membranes called OMPU. Using computational and molecular approaches, the team found that several OMPU mutations in the cholera bacteria led to resistance to numerous antimicrobial agents. This resistance included antimicrobial peptides that act as defenses in the human gut. By comparing resistant and antibiotic-sensitive variants, the researchers were able to identify specific parts of OMPU associated with the emergence of antibiotic resistance. They also discovered that genetic material encoding these variants, along with associated traits, can be passed between bacterial cells, increasing the risk of spreading AMR in populations under antibiotic pressure. As AI becomes increasingly realistic, our trust in those with whom we communicate may be compromised. Researchers at the University of Gothenburg have examined how advanced AI systems impact our trust in the individuals we interact with. Researchers suggest that a pervasive design perspective is driving the development of AI with increasingly human-like features. While this may be appealing in some contexts, it can also be problematic, particularly when it's unclear who you're communicating with. The researchers question whether AI should have such human-like voices as they create a sense of intimacy and lead people to form impressions based on that voice alone. I'll be joined by Dr. Paul Sangara in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Lumia is a premier eye surgery center that offers a full range of vision correction options with the most cutting-edge technology in elective eye procedures like LAL, a revolutionary adjustable cataract procedure. Co-founded by two of the top surgeons in Canada, Lumia is a team of ophthalmologists, optometrists, and eye care professionals dedicated to delivering a best-in-class patient experience that provides better vision without the use of glasses or contact lenses. For more information, visit www. Dr. Paul Sangara is a nationally renowned cataract and refractive surgeon, having performed more than 25,000 intraocular and 30,000 laser surgeries across Canada. He's recognized as a leader in his field and a pioneer in the use of new technologies. His experience has afforded him the skill and knowledge to cater to today's cutting-edge surgeries to match every patient's unique visual needs and improve their visual outcomes. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm doing well. And yourself? Doing very well. So in a few days, it's going to be Cataract Awareness Month. What is cataract surgery for those who don't know, and why is it important? Yeah, so uh, cataract surgery is something that's near and dear to me. As uh, I'm a comprehensive ophthalmologist, and cataract surgery is basically my, my bread and butter. Cataracts are basically opacifications of the natural crystalline lens. Now, where every human being is born with a lens in their eye, that lens focuses light from the outside world onto the retina, so it allows you to see your born in life with a clear lens and over time in all of us that lens begins to opacify or it begins to get cloudy so that affects patients vision and the only way that patients will be able to see better is by removing that lens so that's what cataract surgery is cataract surgery involves removing that opacified lens with an ultrasound and then replacing that opacified lens with a clear artificial lens that then goes into the eye It's important because the most common causes of cataracts are UV light from the sun. So we're all going to be exposed to ultraviolet light throughout our lives. And obviously, the older we get, the more sunlight exposure we get. So, you know, 80% of patients over the age of 80 either have had cataract surgery or have cataracts. So if we live long enough, we're all going to need cataract surgery. And therefore, it's the most common elective surgical procedure in the world. And I understand your clinic is called Lumia, right? Correct. And you have sort of a unique adjustable cataract surgery. Can you tell us how this kind of specialized surgery works? Yeah, so I've been in practice for over 15 years. And the light adjustable lens, which recently got approved in Canada, but has been approved in the United States for almost a decade, is in my time as an ophthalmologist has been probably the most revolutionary change in cataract surgery that I've ever had a chance to experience. So what happens with traditional or usual cataract surgery before the light adjustable lens, we would, just like how when you go to an optometrist and get your glasses checked, you have to get measured, your eyeballs get measured, and then there's a pair of glasses that go in front of your eyes, and they have a prescription in them that matches the shape of your eyeball. It's the same thing with cataract surgery. When we take out the lens, the cloudy lens in your eye, we have to insert a new artificial lens into your eye. That lens has to have a certain prescription to it, and we determine that by measuring your eyes before the surgery. Now, before the light-adjustable lens, we would measure a person's eyes, we'd insert a lens of a particular prescription, and you know, 95% of the time, we're very accurate with that measurement. But just like if you go to an optometrist, there might be that rare instance where you get measured for a pair of glasses, and you're expecting this beautiful vision from your glasses, and you put on your new pair of glasses, and it's not quite right. Well, that happens with cataract surgery as well. We can insert an artificial lens into the eye with a particular prescription, and it's not quite right, it's not quite focused. And that becomes a bit of a challenge for us because what are we supposed to do now? The lens is inside your eye. Along comes the light-adjustable lens, which is the game-changer. So everything is the same. We measure your eyes. We determine a prescription of lens. We put it into your eye, and the lens heals inside your eye. This lens has what we call macromers, and they're what we call photosensitive. So after a month of healing, we can shine an ultraviolet light onto the lens, and it changes the shape of the lens by a process called photosensitization. So we can actually tweak the prescription or the shape of the lens after cataract surgery, and it's the only lens in the world that has the capacity to do that. 
So we are fine-tuning patients' vision after cataract surgery, and that is the game-changer technology. And because of that, we are the only clinic in Canada that has the light-adjustable lens at this point, and that's why we wanted to adopt this technology, because of its game-changing nature. So can you do these subtle adjustments beyond that one month, or is it the type of thing where it's still settling and that's your opportunity to fine-tune it? We can technically do the adjustments at any point after cataract surgery. However, the adjustment is facilitated by ultraviolet light. The sun has ultraviolet in it too. So theoretically, you know, if one was to go out into the bright sun after cataract, after cataract surgery with a light adjustable lens, there might be some changes to the lens. We protect against that. Patients wear special, nice ultraviolet protecting sunglasses after surgery while they're outside, usually only outside. They don't have to bother with it indoors. And that's why we want to do the adjustments about a month after surgery. A month is a sweet spot. You allow for the lens to heal nicely into the eye, but you want to obviously facilitate the adjustments. You can do up to three adjustments, and we usually separate them out by a one-week interval. So, So that takes about three weeks. The beautiful thing about these adjustments is patients in between those adjustments and in those intervals, they're test driving their vision. So we'll adjust them on the first adjustment. They'll go out into the world, live their lives, say, ah, you know what, I want to have a little bit more reading or I want a little bit sharper distance. We can do that. So we can tweak the vision as patients are getting their adjustments. They're test driving their vision. They're telling us what they like. They're telling us what they don't like. And then after the third possible adjustment, we do something called a lock. And that's where basically we bake in that vision into the lens and after that lock which usually happens uh, about four weeks after implantation then the patients are free to go out into the sun without sunglasses if they want basically they live their lives with that baked in perfect vision most of the time before this technology there were limited options right like if you didn't get it right was there a solution would you go back in and replace the lens or we did have options and we still do have those same options you know the reality is is the measurement instrumentation, the technology for lenses is is very good. We've done a very good job in terms of getting it right most of the time on the first go. I would say our hit rate or you know our success rate in terms of being uh, very close to what we targeted is about ninety five percent of the time. So we're doing a, a very good job on with our traditional lenses. But for that five percent is a bit of a conundrum. Myself, I'm also a, a refractive surgeon, so meaning I also do laser vision correction on you know the 25 year olds that don't really want to get rid of their glasses, and that would be the fallback that usually we would do. So if you're off in terms of where that lens outcome lands, what does that mean? That means you have a bit of a prescription. That means in terms of having zero prescription, you might be a minus 0.5, a plus 0.5. Those are small prescriptions, but nonetheless can be bothersome. And we've traditionally dealt with them by doing laser vision correction, such as LASIK, and it works. The only downside to that is that's a second procedure. So that's a second intervention on the eyeball. And interventions on the eyeball, such as LASIK, do have some some side effects, such as dry eyes. So you're now healing a second procedure. With the light-adjustable lens, it's not technically a procedure. You're just shining light onto a lens. So there really isn't any downtime or need to recover from the adjustments. I think that's where the true value of of it has been. Plus, with the adjustments, our ability to hit like zero prescription, what we call Plano in our world, in our world, it's unparalleled. I've used every lens under the sun, 
and I've gotten very close. But to see a patient time in and time out that has zero or planal refraction after cataract surgery, it's astounding. So it's been remarkable. So how long have you been using the light adjustable lenses in in surgery? How long have you been doing that? Yeah, so we were the first clinic in Canada to start using the light adjustable lens. We started in February. We're coming up to 100 implantations. So I think, you know, in terms of experience, we are the industry leaders in Canada. It's been a very surprising, pleasantly surprising experience. The adjustments have their own nuance to them. So there was an initial learning curve in terms of how do you take care of certain prescriptions and how do you use something called spherical aberration, which is basically leveraging an optical technique to give patients some range of vision. And so we have colleagues in the States that were really kind and kind of had more experience than we did and gave us basically the uh, the cheat sheet. And uh, I think our results over the first 100 cases have been remarkable patients that are seeing 2020 or even better than 2020 at distance is hovering around 95%, which is astounding. And patients that read something called J1 or being able to see fine print without glasses is also around 95%. And just to provide context, that's more than double what any other traditional lens technology has been able to provide prior to the light adjustable lens. So it's it's incredible. And I presume that the 100 or so patients that you've seen, uh, the feedback is positive. I think that's what to me has been the most pleasant part of the surgery and and the adjustments is the patient wow factor and the patient satisfaction factor has been also a big surprise to me. When I originally was introduced to the lens, I I had my my concerns because I said to myself, wow, patients are going to have to wear, you know, these glasses outside for seven to eight weeks. They're going to have to come in for a lot of follow-up. So, you know, usually if one does traditional cataract surgery, they'll have a a one-day follow-up and a one-week follow-up. You know, we've gotten very good at processing that out. Here, there are a lot of follow-ups that occur after surgery, The you know, the four-week adjustment, five-week adjustment, six-week adjustments, and the locks. And so I kind of was a little apprehensive about, wow, are patients going to buy in? Are they going to invest this much time? And what I have found is patients love the ability to be able to tell the doctor what they want out of their vision. It's not the other way around. It's not me telling the patient, we're going to put in this lens and you're going to get this. Patients are telling us what they want. So they actually have far more ownership over their outcome than with traditional lens technology, and they love it. And so I think that's been a big surprise is that the buy-in and the investment that patients have, it kind of sells itself. Patients love that ability with the light adjustable lens. Okay, let's shift gears a bit. Uh, Lumia, your clinic, recently set a new sustainability benchmark as Canada's first carbon-neutral surgical center. I find that really intriguing. I'm, I, I know there's sort of like a lot of waste materials after surgery. Can you explain a little bit about the sustainability practices uh, within your field? Yeah, you know, it's something obviously that's been near and dear to me, and it's been something that I think the healthcare industry as a whole faces in terms of challenges. And I don't see a lot that's being done in the healthcare industry per se in terms of tackling this challenge. Obviously, when it comes to healthcare, 
we're worried about, especially surgeries, we're worried about infections. Yep. And we want to maintain the highest standards of infection control and patient safety and outcomes. So a lot of our equipment is what we call single-use disposable. So rather than re-sterilizing, we create these disposable instruments that we use once and then we discard. It's great for infection control. However, obviously, there's a lot of waste involved there. Also, you know, the world has changed after COVID or during COVID. There's a lot of virtual abilities that happened. Not so much when it comes to the healthcare industry. We do do a lot of virtual consults, but if patients are having surgery, they're going to have to drive in. They're going to have to do face-and-face encounters. So, you know, we've kind of lagged behind in certain things. And we just haven't, I feel the healthcare industry as a whole hasn't moved the needle a lot. So this is something that for me, having young kids wanting to leave the world in a better place than leave it than when I, than when I started and having facing a climate crisis that we're facing, that's just something that was important to me. So we partnered with an agency called Climate Partner. Climate Partner helped us to uh, determine our carbon footprint they measured various benchmarks in terms of things such as, you know, our electricity, our heating, our purchase of new capital goods. And so they were able to establish what our carbon footprint was. And then from that, we established some reduction objectives, you know, things such as, you know, tackling our, our heating and encouraging our employees to maybe uh, use public transportation or car share. So th- these are things that we could control. And the things that we couldn't, because they're too important for patient safety, such as using, uh, you know, single-use disposable disposable equipment, we had to find ways to offset that. So Climate Partner helped us to find projects throughout the world that we were basically sponsored to help us to offset our carbon footprint. And because of that, you know, we were certified by carbon uh, by Climate Partner as being carbon neutral. And personally, in spite of all the amazing technologies and all the things that we're capable of doing. I think I'm most proud of the fact that, you know, we're, we're a carbon-neutral, sustainable business. I think that's one of our biggest accomplishments at Umiya. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Paul Sangara. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss loneliness on The Tonic. Managing type 1 diabetes isn't easy. You have to make countless choices every day. Life just got a little easier. Medtronic's Minimed 780G system is designed to give you more control with less effort. Integrated with continuous glucose monitoring, it's the only system that automatically adjusts insulin delivery every five minutes based on glucose levels. If you're currently on multiple daily injections or an insulin pump, find out more about the Minimed 780G system at www.medtronicdiabetes.ca. The system uses SmartGuard technology. Individual results may vary, and some user interaction is required. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. 
Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. John Solvik, M.A., LMFT is a psychotherapist based in California. He's also the author of a new book, Out, A Parent's Guide to Supporting Your LGBTQIA Plus Kid Through Coming Out and Beyond. John specializes in working with LGBT teens and their families during the coming out process. His work has been featured on The Ricky Lake Show, OWN, Fox, The Advocate, YHTV, LA Talk Radio, Huffington Post, and more. And for more information, you can always visit www.johnsovic.com. Welcome to the show, John. How are you? I'm doing great, and it's wonderful to chat with you today. There's an issue that we've talked about on our show before, and that is sort of the uh, pervasive alienation and loneliness that so many people feel, uh, particularly as they get older. And there have been some recent studies that sort of talk about loneliness as being an epidemic. And I thought it would be interesting to bring you on the show to discuss some of the factors contributing to the increase in loneliness that we see in North America. What do you see? Yeah, it's really interesting that we're watching these numbers of loneliness go up. And recently here in the U.S., the uh, Surgeon General released this huge report on loneliness and how it's affecting people. And the thing that's really fascinating about this report is it's actually based on a survey work that was done pre-pandemic. So this is from information before 2020. And if you look at adding the pandemic on top of it, I mean, think of how this is exacerbating all of these facets of loneliness that people are experiencing right now. My personal view is that it's social media is a huge contributor. It sort of, it allows people not to be interactive in live settings. And it's so easy to sort of behave badly over social media because it's anonymous. And I think it's sort of creating a situation where people are either trying to find their own tribes and can't, or are just sort of feeling the lack of civility as being sort of an impediment to civil interaction. Do you see that? Do you agree? Or am I off on my own tangent? No, no, no. I think it's a really valid point. And I always find the, the name social media be, to be such a misnomer yeah. because what it's actually doing is it is isolating people. We are imagining that we are creating connection by scrolling through and looking at people's lives from this almost vicarious point of view rather than actually like reaching out and connecting and taking a walk with that friend or calling them up and talking in person that we've created this substitution of social media. And I think obviously this got exacerbated during COVID. I mean, the restrictions, particularly in, in the city of Toronto, were, were extreme. And I would imagine that the research shows that it really hasn't helped for people's sense of self and, and, and the whole issue of loneliness. Is, is that true? Yeah, because what we started doing is the only way we could have interactions or gather information was through media, social media, watching the news, listening to podcasts, listening to local news sources. So our entire world is being filtered through these media sources. You know, and in some cases, it brought families closer together. They found ways to connect in ways they hadn't for a long time. But as a whole, what we looked at is it really influence people's ability to connect, to sit down, to chat. You know, I work with a lot of adolescents, and the one thing that we're finding already panning out as kids are returning to school is they do not know how to connect with each other face-to-face. It's a real challenge for them to redevelop those social skills, which were put on pause for a few years. Is that the age group that's most affected by the loneliness epidemic? 
What we're actually looking at is it tends to be older people are really affected by the loneliness factor because there are many things in play there, whether it's health issues, whether it's death of friends and spouse, there tends to be an increased loneliness factor playing in there for sure. We're also looking, though, at kids very much so um, because they are being put in these situations to be back in school, but they don't know how to connect. And so they're wandering around these schools with hundreds of other kids and feeling lonely in those spaces, even though they're surrounded. Okay. We talk about loneliness, you know, as an issue. So we're saying people are lonely, but that doesn't sort of project the whole picture because there are health risks to being lonely, aren't there? There are. And the thing is, it affects both the mental well-being of people, but also the physical well-being. And this is a piece of the puzzle that I don't know if a lot of people are aware of. But what we do find out is that loneliness and all the things that go with a behavior of a lonely person can heighten the risk for heart disease, high blood pressure. Um, It even affects diabetes. And a really, really fascinating piece of information that came out of the study is that people who are living alone in this loneliness place are actually even more susceptible to basic things like the common cold. And it's really fascinating, and they're, they're really trying to follow that, that train and figure out how that's playing out. One of the suspicions is because we're in non-social environments, we're not building up our immune system. So it does have this real physical factor. And then when we look on the side of mental health and well-being, um, at least a huge amount of depression, suicidal ideation, and even anxiety at the very thought of having to step back out into the world. Okay, so we're sort of speaking in, a, in broad strokes here, but is there any data that can support the notion that there are health risks to loneliness? For those who don't believe it, I suppose. Right. So, I mean, there are some real specific things I can pull up for you. Like chronic isolation can lead to a 50% higher rate of dementia in older adults. We look at that isolation lowers, actually raises the susceptibility to diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, especially in women. We also are looking at the fact that high blood pressure, um, loneliness leads to a 36% higher risk of having high blood pressure in a long-term situation. We're also looking at heart disease, a 32% increase in the risk of stroke in lonely people, a 29% increase in the risk of heart disease. So these are actual hard facts that do exist, and we need to pay attention to them. And I think that's why this big call to awareness of this is being asked to take place, both on a national level, but also community and individual level. So perhaps we can all work together to turn these risk factors around. So when we talk about the manifestation physically of health factors, is it directly attributable to being lonely or is it collateral to the loneliness? In other words, you're on your own, you're living on your own, you're not interacting with people, therefore you're probably not being active, so you're in poor physical condition. Is that what it is? Or is it the mental element that's impact, like the mental manifestation of being lonely is creating these physical manifestations that you just explained? Well, we have that as one factor, but there are other things that are playing out as well, too. Loneliness, when people are in this uh, on-their-own situation, tends to have increased levels of people who are smoking, probably more than someone who might just be socially smoking, tend to be higher levels of drinking alcohol, 
because of a lack of physical activity, this tends to open up doorways to obesity, and it becomes this, this cycle that's really difficult to get out of and start a process towards healing and wellness. Okay, so now that we've scared the hell out of everybody, what are the recommendations for addressing this loneliness issue? You know, sometimes it's the simplest things can have the biggest benefits. I know for myself, when I go outside and take the dog for a walk, and I go through my community, and I see neighbors, I simply smile and say hello. Yeah. Now, there are neighbors that I've lived next to for years who sometimes will nod back, and that's the most we can get. Yeah. But that's also a little bit of connection. I have other neighbors over time who we have become close friends, that we take care of each other. You know, we buy pies when their kids have the pie sale, and we watch each other's houses when someone is out of town. It can start as simple as that by simply walking out your door and saying hello to the people that live in your neighborhood. And that's one really basic level of of connection that we can start creating. Okay, what comes next? So we look at social media. We were talking about at the top of our conversation. And the thing we need to understand is social media is real and it is here to stay. It is part of the fabric of our lives these days. But what we need to do is create a relationship to screen time that might be a little bit healthier. One of the things that I work on with my clients is asking a very simple question. Anytime you're going to look at your your phone, open up your computer, even turn on the television or play a video game. You have to ask yourself this simple question. Is there something else I would rather be doing? Now, the answer can be yes or no. Right. But if the answer is yes, we're taking that pause and we're saying, oh, I don't need just to automatically turn to this screen to get my fulfillment and connection. I'm going to go out and garden. I'm going to go down to the Humane Society and volunteer some hours. I am going to reach out to my family and connect with them. I'm going to see if my neighbor wants to take a walk. So by asking that simple question, we can start to change our relationship to our screens. And another little word that got slipped in there, too, that I think is so important to create this connection is volunteering. I always joke with my clients, if I had a prescription pad, I would write you a prescription to volunteer. Yep. What's really cool about it is volunteering is a group of people coming together who believe in a connected cause and they want to make a difference. So in that environment, you're going to find people who share your values, and you're going to become connected, whether it's packing bags at a food bank, and you're next to each other and joking and laughing, or like I said earlier, working with Humane Society, interacting with animals, interacting with the other people at the, at the Humane Society. All of these pieces will help to battle that idea of loneliness and that we can't connect others. That's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was John Sovic. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the garden hacks to avoid on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. 
you get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed, a garden education and design company. She's been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Florit, and Toronto Life, and is a regular garden contributor for Canadian Vegan Magazine. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, she is the co-founder of the Abermory Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. For more information, visit thegoodseedgarden.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me. So, you know, in this society where everybody has, you know, 30 seconds of patience and they don't want to crack open a book and they want the answers immediately... Everybody wants a good hack. So we're going to talk about hacks, but I'm not so sure you're in favor of hacks. Are you pro-hack, anti-hack? <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to go off on hacks today a little bit, so stay with me. You know, garden hacks are popular, right, because they're trendy, like you said, and they sort of give us that instant hit of like gratification, and we believe we're going to get this semi-miraculous result. And so... I've just been seeing lots of content being created on social media around hacks in general. And of course, gardening has entered into that realm of like viral video goodness. And, you know, it can seem that you could achieve these wonderful, amazing results. But, (laughs) you know, in all my years of, of gardening and growing, there are very few things that I would consider hacks that will actually pay off for you in a meaningful or sort of long term way. And I know I'm a bit feisty on the topic, but hear me out. I think it's really important for you and your listeners and all of us to sort of embrace the virtue of the garden, which is sort of this slow and meaningful work. And so, you know, having good garden habits and rituals is kind of what makes gardening so good for us, you know, body, mind and soul. And it's that really slow and steady investment that we make in our gardens that will give us the best uh, garden dividends, in my opinion. You know, it's such a work in progress that I can't imagine that any hacks are truly meaningful. Like if you really are somebody who tends to their own garden, and I don't mean like just planting once and then leaving it, but actually getting out there and doing the work, you know, all the time, all these quick fixes are are kind of meaningless. And you just kind of build up your knowledge as you go along and you talk to people. It's almost like saying, you know, I want to do a slow food movement feast. uh, And I want to watch a 30 second video on how to do it. Like, come on. Yeah, it's, it's a lifelong journey, right? And and yeah. as you said, it's, when you start to look to the hack kind of thing, you're taking away sort of that intuitive nature and that connection you've made just by spending time tending your garden. So like everything, I blame social media. Why do you think garden hacks are out there? Same answer? Yeah, like, you know, before there were garden hacks, there were kitchen hacks. And so it is the social media, immediate gratification kind of thing. You know, at the heart of a well-intentioned garden hack, so let's use like putting coffee grinds in the garden, for example, it, 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 it's kind of hopefully rooted in innovation or like a low waste idea. But what I find is that 
this like garden hack culture, social media stuff that we're talking about, it sort of takes away the focus from the bigger picture. And you know that I always come on here and talk to you about soil health, for instance. So my worry with a lot of these hacks is that you're going to start implementing hacks and sort of taking time away from addressing the overall health and biodiversity in your soil because, you know, you're obsessed with like fermenting some banana peels in water and pouring that into your soil and thinking you're solving all your garden problems. I think it's it's definitely, it's definitely on the rise. I think we're all short on time. We all want to have great results, but pump the brakes on the hacks. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, my experience is like if somebody gives you a 30 second answer or like, you know, well, a hack, you know, it may be compelling general information, but like it's almost like trying on shoes at the store. Like it doesn't not all shoes fit everybody's feet and mm-hmm. it may not be right for your particular situation. Right. Or, or there may be exceptions to the rule that, you know, you, you, you don't actually hear or read about in these short articles or, you know, in these short videos. Hacks can do damage, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the hacks that's out there is is sort of like you, you might have seen it. It's people dumping sort of raw compost. So compost like kitchen scraps into their yeah. garden beds. And so for that one, of course, you can do real damage real quick because you're going to have some rodents happily digging through your garden in no time. The other thing is, it's like you could try to do a hack that quote unquote works, but at one expense. So maybe you've seen people sort of replanting like lettuce or green onions, celery in water or in gardens and trying to get it to quote unquote regrow. You know, is it possible that that regrows? Sure. But for me, that's just a poor use of space. So you're taking produce that someone else has grown and harvested using God knows what pesticides, and then you're using it in your garden. Like, just grow it from scratch organically, like you know how. Take your food scraps, use them to make a great, like, soup stock or compost them properly. You know, it's not that compelling. And then I also have seen people using eggshells, like full hollowed-out eggshells to grow seedlings. Bad idea. You're going to have bad seedlings. Don't do it. Yeah, I mean, I've never done that. And I know you and I have discussed it. I have used eggshells in the garden, but not like that. And it's mostly just sort of like the jagged edges keep some of the pests away. And I was convinced I was adding calcium back into the soil, <laughs> though you you dissuaded me from that notion. So I did learn something. So that's a positive. Are there any hacks you actually are okay with? Like they all can't be bad, right? Right. And there are. So I'm going to share my favorite quote-unquote garden hack. And really, it's about gardening organically and creating a physical pest control barrier for your fruit, your veggies, and your flowers. And this matters for two reasons. A physical barrier is a really great way to stop using pesticides in the garden. And also, the solutions I'm going to share with you are reusable year over year. So that's pretty genius. So the first one I'm going to share with you is using nylon sort of sockets to protect like fruit from pest damage. So I'm going to get a little crude in describing it, but it's a bit like a fruit condom. (laughs) So you can think of like a lady's nylon plaquette, but in a smaller form, these can go over the fruit and protect them from burrowing insects, worms, things like that. Similarly, I personally use organza bags. So I don't know if you can picture those, but sort of those like a silky material bag with a drawstring top that you get like at a wedding with bomboniere in it, kind of things like that. Um, You can buy them in bulk 
I actually use those to secure around my prized dahlias so that the Japanese beetles and the earwigs don't start munching on the bloom. And then lastly, again, in the sort of protecting your crops kind of vein, we know that cabbage butterfly likes to nibble on the kale and the cauliflower and things like that. And so if you're looking for a floating row cover for an insect barrier, one of the sort of cheap and cheerful ways is just to go to the fabric store and buy tool. So these hmm. are the hacks I can get behind. Okay. So I may have stolen your thunder a bit with my rantings about social media, <laughs> but how do you think gardening has changed with the advent of social media? Yeah, I mean, social media is changing itself really fast. And I think that what we're seeing on social media is there are sort of two camps. There are garden experts and there are content creators. So who do we want to get our information from? Do we want to get our information from someone who this is their trade or do we want to get our information from someone who's looking to create a video or something controversial to get engagement and likes and cause controversy and things like that. So have a really critical eye when you're looking at social media. Is it a content creator? Is it a gardener? Is it some kind of, I don't know, amalgam of both? We have to be really careful. Right. So don't go for the star, go for somebody who actually may know what they're talking about. Well, and who, who shows you results year over year of harvest and design and things like that, not just, like you said, somebody who's doing something, you know, showy. All right. Well, I have no time for social media. So, I mean, I wouldn't go there, but sometimes I do need some resources. So let's be positive. Where are some resources for good quality garden information? So I am an analog gal when it comes to gardens. I think that gardening books are some of the most beautiful. I think we've talked about this at length. Yep. But I wanted to give you some publications that are great to have on hand. So we talked about one for pruning last month, which was Steve Bradley's pruning book. Now for growing your garden, uh, the veg garden, there's a book by Frank Tozer, T-O-Z-E-R, called The Vegetable Grower's Handbook. It's had a couple of iterations. It may be out of print, but it's pretty easy to get secondhand. It's an incredible text. It's so full of information. It's not full of a lot of images, but you can't go wrong with it. For flower growing uh, and perennials, I love Piet Udolf's work. His books are incredible. He's got lots of plant pairings and design ideas that can help you ahead of going to the nursery and just sort of impulse buying, <laughs> which we're all guilty yep. of, I think. And then uh, for all things sort of flowers, cut flowers, Erin uh, Benzikane of Florette, she's amazing. She's got three great books, and those are really valuable to have. A bit of investment at the library or at your local independent bookstore, I think, can get you immersed in great garden practices and sort of distancing yourself from this hack culture. Well, thank you for coming on the show today and giving us your hack about hacks that we should ignore a lot of them. <laughs> that was uh, Melissa Cameron. For more information about Melissa, visit thegoodseedgarden.com. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Stacy Irvine, D.C., is the co-founder of Totem Life Science. The philosophy and identity of Totem have been greatly influenced by Stacy's love of athletics and her passionate belief that everyone will benefit from a healthy, active lifestyle in their own unique way. Through her work as a chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Dr. Irvine's clientele ranges from beginners just starting out on an exercise program to elite and professional athletes looking for advanced rehabilitation and training program strategies. She's also a frequent guest on this show. Welcome back, Stacey. How are you? Great to be here. I'm good, thanks. So sometimes when guests come, they have something they want to talk about, and I'm, I'm game and we do that. In other circumstances, I'm the one who suggests the topic because usually, you know, it's about me. And, <laughs> and in this particular instance, unfortunately, this is about me, and we're going to talk about hernias, right? Right. So for those who don't know, what is a hernia? And what does it feel like? I may be able to edify on that last point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very interested to hear your experience with a hernia. I also have an experience with having a hernia. Oh, no. Yeah, for a different reason, but we'll get into all that. So for all our listeners... A hernia is when you and I are talking about the basic hernia, so, you know, abdominal, inguinal. There are other ones that are much more complicated, but, you know, that's beyond what we're talking about today. The basic hernias and the most common are abdominal. And because we have many layers of tissue over our abdomen, so we have many, you know, a few layers of muscle, then we have some fascia, occasionally... In certain circumstances, this tissue becomes thin or splits, and then you have basically the contents that are underneath that tissue able to protrude through the tissue. That is kind of the technical layman's definition of a hernia. Yeah, and I will share what it feels like. It really hurts. Yes. And, you know, essentially it's like your your muscles are parting, so they're tearing. They are. They are. They're tearing, and in my particular instance, intestines, etc. Yes. Colon is bursting through, through and sort of bulging, and aesthetically it ain't pretty, but it is very painful. So it's literally a muscle tear. It's not a strain. It's a tear. And it, in my particular instance, it was caused because I went back to exercising, doing weights after recent surgery. And I wasn't forewarned and did some damage. Yeah, that's a, it's an awful scenario when you go through it in that type of a circumstance. And in my circumstance, mine started because, first of all, I had three massive babies who were <laughs> 10 pounds each. Oh, my gosh. On a, a frame that's my size, maybe not built to accommodate a gigantic baby. So I started with erectus diastasis after, you know, early into my pregnancy, which means that my rectus abdominis split in order to accommodate the baby. Then after having the baby, then I had a full abdominal hernia through that area. In my case, it was painful as well. It's important to note, though, for some people, if a hernia comes on gradually, sometimes it's not painful. So a hernia related to obesity, 
a hernia related to someone who's maybe not active? Because in your case, you knew right away because yep. you were active, you were straining, and all of a sudden we're left with this awful situation. My case was the same. If I was active and the abdominal contents started for, to protrude through that area, it was excruciatingly painful. And then we're left with this situation where, in both our cases, no one really warned us that this was going to happen. And that is very unfortunate. In your case, so 30% of abdominal surgeries can result in a hernia. They do, okay? But I would argue, those are the documented ones that we know about. I would argue that it's probably a much higher level that people just don't come back and report, you know, I have a hernia from this. So this is a really important topic. I'm very happy we're discussing it today. Yeah, I mean, it is not uncommon. You know, because it was tied to the surgery that I had, it wasn't apparent to me what had happened. I just assumed it was a side effect of the work that had already right. been done on my body. Right. And these were just my body getting used to the new reality of what I was dealing with. I didn't appreciate it. it was a new condition. And the other part that was kind of annoying for me personally is I asked all my practitioners, is it okay if I go back to weight training and how do I do it? And, you know, to their credit, they said start off slow, which I absolutely did. But knowing me, I'm, I'm going to ramp up. And I was very clear with them. I'm that type of personality. And that was going to happen. I think they should have warned me that this was a possibility because it is so common. And also there was an easy way of dealing with it. I now have an apparatus. It's kind of it almost looks like a weightlifter's belt. Yes. Which I'm using during workouts. It, it kind of screws up my mobility. But if I had that on when I was ramping up, I don't think I would have gotten the hernia. You're absolutely correct, I believe. And this is such an important thing for all of us to understand is that there are ways to improve the situation post-surgery, post-C-section. You know, right. that was my situation. So when I had my first baby, that would be 18 years ago, you have a C-section, which means you have an incision going across your lower abdomen. And you are now, everybody wants you to leave the hospital the next day, which right. is fine. I wanted yeah, yeah. to leave too. I was totally great with that. And I would move around and try to pick up the baby with this huge incision. I, believe it or not, took one of those old tensor bandages. Yeah. And all I did was wrap it around myself over the incision a number of times. And I am not exaggerating that I could move around 50% better than I could without that old $2 tensor bandage on. Okay. Yeah. And your situation was similar is if they would have sent you home with some support, you would have done a lot better. And I said this to my doctors and my nurses, but you don't usually see them much after the fact, right? And yeah. I said, you know, why don't you tell everyone coming out of the hospital that wearing a supportive device can really help you with your mobility. It can really help you, in my case, you know, picking up the baby because it's just an extra layer of support. And when we think about functionally, what is a hernia? You're just missing that area of support. And we have all these compression types of garments and things like that now. Those could be amazing for someone coming out of abdominal surgery. And I would say should be recommended for everyone coming out of it. They told me I, there is sort of a tensor bandage, which you can use with the apparatus I have right now. 
but they suggested it only if I was doing something particularly vigorous. The truth of the matter is now I wear it 24-7 right. because of the hernia, but I probably would have worn it 24-7 in advance just because I lead an active lifestyle. And the interesting thing was I was very clear with everybody who was treating me, I am very active. Yes. Like, you, you need to tell me. So let's talk about, is it okay to exercise if you have a hernia? Like, I think I kind of know the answer, which is yes, if you have, you know, a belt to help you. But you tell me, Stacey, is it okay? That is the correct answer. We never want people to stop moving. Yeah. Now, you have to say... It depends. Right. Right? Depends on what was your level of fitness before. Of course. And how large is your hernia. Many different things. But there is no day of no year of my life that you will hear me say, don't exercise. Right. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. Because if we stop moving, no matter how old you are, you're going to have a ton of other health impacts. In my opinion, when you leave a hospital, the most important thing for you to do is to be able to get up, walk around, go to the bathroom, eat your food, prepare your food. So the goal of the nurses and the doctors and the surgeons should be, how do we prepare every person to best be able to do that? When we have something as simple as a compression garment that really costs virtually nothing and, you know, is a really important conversation to have to someone that you've had this surgery, you are at a high risk for a hernia. Let's get the compression garment on. Let's take it easy. But I want you walking. I want you doing as much as you can to get your heart rate up and maybe not heavy lifting. All right, because we know for sure that there's a direct correlation between heavy lifting and abdominal pressure and a potential for a hernia. But let's do whatever we can to get you back to being healthy. So we're actually almost out of time. (laughs) But, you know, other than moving, what sort of modifications? If you have a hernia and you're, you're still somewhat mobile, what sort of exercises can you do? Is there anything you can do to help? There's not much you can do to repair that area. So that area is a surgical repair, essentially. Sometimes we will see it come back together. So what can you do to help? This is a great question. First of all, what we just talked about, being healthy, blood flow, all these things, keeping the rest of your body healthy, keeping everything working. What can you do for that area? You can do gentle things that will stabilize that area. So if we're talking about abdominal type, abdominal hernia, I'm very good with things like planks, things where you keep your body straight. But absolutely, you need to work with someone. Go find someone that knows how to work with hernias and knows how to give you good advice. Because, for example, no crunches, right? So if you have an abdominal... I I learned that the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) We never want to do a type of a setup where we're opening it up again. Little modifications, knowing where your hernia is and understanding what movements you can do without irritating... And what movements you should avoid. This is very crucial, but for most of us, you're going to need to just meet with a kind of a rehab specialist or someone that is familiar with this to be safe because we want everyone to progress and be safe, including you. Including me (laughs) and my crazy ways. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Paul Sangara, John Sovic, Melissa Cameron, and Stacey Irvine. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. 
To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine, which is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.